The following is a first-person narrative based on true events. Some of the names of the individuals involved in this case and the details of the story may have been changed for purposes of this episode. When I first came to Orange County, California, I thought it was the most amazing place in the world. I had never been surrounded by so much beauty ever before in my life. I couldn't believe that I actually lived so close to Disneyland. It used to be a place that we only would hear about, almost like it didn't even exist. And yet now, there it was, practically in my own backyard. We ended up moving to a city called Yorba Linda. It's in the northern region of the county, so it's not near the beach. Like whenever you think of Orange County, you first think of Disneyland, and then you think of all the beaches. Not where we were at, but it was still very nice much nicer than where we had come from. I lived in a small but really pretty house with my mom, her name was Raquel, and my older brother, Juan Carlos. It was a dream of my mom's to give us a better life. It was a dream of hers to come to the United States, and when she did, she really wanted to come to California. When we left Mexico, I was seven, and Juan Carlos was 17. As soon as we got settled, everything about my mom changed. She was so happy and so proud. She took care of us on her own, and there was nothing more that she wanted than for us to have a better life and more opportunities than she had growing up. Her dreams as a child didn't come true, but she wanted ours to, and that's what she saw here in America. It was in December of 1994 when we moved here. My first Christmas was that same month and it would always be one of my favorites. The following month, my brother started his own landscaping and maintenance business. He pretty much would do any work anyone was willing to hire him to do and all of it was an effort to help take care of us. Because we didn't have a dad around and he was 10 years older than me, he was the one who took on the role of the father figure in my life. While I was excited to be in the United States with everything it had to offer, it was a little bit difficult for me to adjust at first. I did have to leave all of my friends behind back in Mexico, and I pretty much had to start from scratch. It got easier when I was enrolled in school, and I started making new friends. That really helped a lot. It was in my junior year in high school when I met the two people who would become my best friends. Karouche was in my first period class. We hit it off right away. And Izkultl, we called him Izzy for short. I met him in my second period class. From then on, it was just the three of us, always. We were together all the time. We did everything together. They were truly the best friends I'd ever have. We were so close, like brothers. Izzy was the type of guy who was kind and caring. He really had a soft spot in his heart for people, especially people in need. Whenever I needed anything, he was there for me. He was just a really sweet person. There's just no better way to describe Izzy. He was a guy with a big heart. 
And Karouge, he was a little bit more serious than Izzy and me. He seemed more mature, even though we were all the same age. We always figured that right after high school, Karouche was going to go off to some prestigious college and become like the CEO of a company, something where he would get to wear a suit and tie. I don't think it really mattered what Karouche did as long as he looked smart, successful, and professional. As for Izzy, his big dream was to enlist in the Marine Corps. He felt like if he could get into the Marines, then he could do anything he wanted. It was going to be his means to a better life for himself, and that was all he talked about, becoming a Marine. It was hard to imagine how things were going to change after we graduated. We saw each other all day, every day. But with Izzy enlisting in the military and Karush going off to college and me, me doing whatever it is I was going to do, I was still trying to figure that out, we were coming to a point in our friendship where we weren't going to be seeing each other all the time anymore. But, you know, we figured things always come full circle. Each of us might be going in a different direction, but in the end, we were certain that we would find our way back, right here, where it all started. Never in a million years could I have imagined just how wrong we were about that. We graduated from high school in June of 2006. Karush had gone off to college and Izzy did what he said he was going to do. He enlisted in the Marines and was deployed to Iraq. I stayed right there in Yorba Linda to help take care of my mom. Two years would pass, early 2008, before I would see Izzy again. But his family here in Yorba Linda had run into some hard times. Izzy's dad had been laid off from his job and just like that, he soon lost their house and suddenly found himself homeless. It was hard on Izzy, how things had gone so bad so quickly for his father. When he first left for Iraq, everything was good. Things were stable. His family was secure. They owned their home. His dad had a good job. He worked hard and was dedicated. And in the blink of an eye, it was gone. And his dad was living on the streets. Izzy had come back to California, but he was still with the Marines and was staying down in Camp Pendleton. And it wasn't until the summer of 2011 when he was finally discharged. Izzy was preparing to come back home, but he had no place to come home to. He had no place to land, no place to stay. And for all the years that Izzy had been there for me, helping me when I needed it, having my back at all times, I wanted to do the same for him. So I asked my mom and my brother if it was okay if Izzy came to stay with us for a while until he got settled and figured out a way to get on his feet. Of course, my family were more than happy to welcome him into our home. And what's more, my brother asked him if he wanted to work for his landscaping business, an offer that Izzy accepted. The last thing any of us wanted was for Izzy to come back home from serving our country with no place to go. There was no way that I was going to let that happen. Orange County is known for its beautiful neighborhoods, beachfront homes, and bedroom communities. But it is also a place that draws 
a large population of homeless people because of the generally mild weather all year round. It's actually almost perfect for living outdoors most of the year. It does get really hot at times in the summer, but it doesn't get all that cold in the winter months, and if it does, it's just a handful of days that are particularly harsh. There is very little risk of people freezing to death like some of the other big cities in the northern parts of the country during the winter months. And generally speaking, homelessness wasn't that big of a problem. Most people tended to keep to themselves. There weren't often many incidents among the homeless population that ever required any intervention from law enforcement. That is, until December of 2011. That is when everything changed amongst the homeless community in the North Orange County area. In the early morning hours of December 20th, 2011, a dog walker was passing by a small neighborhood strip shopping center in the city of Placentia, just west of Yorba Linda and east of Fullerton, when she discovered a man laying on the ground. She called 911 and when first responders arrived at the scene, they found the man to be deceased. Later on, I found out his name was James McGillivray. He was 53 years old and he was homeless. The evening before, he had laid down on the ground to try and sleep on this very chilly evening. He was tucked inside a couple of blankets next to one of the strip mall's support pillars. A thin person wearing a dark hoodie and dark pants had been lingering nearby in an alley. When that person was confident that Mr. McGillivray was as sound asleep as he could be, that figure approached him and began his attack. He jumped on top of Mr. McGillivray, holding him down by driving his knee into his torso, and in a matter of no more than two minutes, the attacker stabbed Mr. McGillivray more than 50 times in the head and torso. When the assailant's arm grew weary from the attack, he passed the deadly blade to his other hand and continued plunging it into his victim. Forty seconds into the attack, Mr. McGillivray's arms and legs ceased to flail. The vicious attack was captured on one of the strip mall surveillance cameras. It was dark and it was grainy, but there was no doubt what was captured in those chilling moments. Mr. McGillivray never had a moment to even try to defend himself against this surprise attack. He'd been fast asleep. He never saw it coming. And in looking at that video footage, it was impossible to identify the person who did this to him. All you could see was a thin figure in dark clothing. One week later, on December 27, 2011, it happened again. This time in the city of Anaheim, five miles or eight kilometers southwest of where Mr. McGillivray was killed. Another murder of another homeless individual occurred. A man was jogging that morning along the Santa Ana River when he discovered the body of 42-year-old Jimmy Middow. Mr. Middow was asleep under an overpass when he was attacked and stabbed more than 60 times, also in the head and upper torso. So now Orange County authorities had two victims. Both of them were men. Both of them were homeless. Both of them were murdered outdoors. 
and both had been brutally stabbed dozens of times. The thought was entertained that the two cases were likely related, likely perpetrated by the same individual. However, I don't think that authorities really wanted to admit to themselves or to the public that they possibly had a serial killer on their hands. Mr. Medow was a registered sex offender. Because of his criminal history, he was unable to find a job. He had no place to stay. And earlier that same evening that he was murdered, he had called his mom. He was really upset as he told her that he was unable to find an open bed in a shelter that evening. So he ended up under a freeway overpass. He had been reading a book before he eventually dozed off. According to Mr. Medow's mom, he did struggle with mental health issues. He never really seemed to mature or to grow up. She described him as being unable to distinguish the difference between right and wrong, which led him to having numerous run-ins with the law. And he seemed to just fall into this endless cycle of making poor choices and getting into trouble. Mr. Medow spent a significant amount of time in prison, but his mother said that the last time he was released, that her son really wanted to make things different. He didn't want to keep living the life that he was living, but it was hard for him to be able to do anything because of all of the conditions of his parole, including having to register as a sex offender. And because of that, he was unable to live with his mother because she lived in a retirement community. With his criminal background, along with the fact that he was too young to qualify to live in that community, there was nothing his mom was able to do to help him. Mr. Medow's mom had heard about the murder of Mr. McGillivray, and she did worry about her son. And it would be just a week later that she received that knock on her door from detectives who were there to inform her that her son had been murdered. Mr. Medow's attacker had approached him quietly. He was taking in his target's enormous size, deciding the best way to take the sleeping man down. However, it was the sound of the attacker walking around him that caused Mr. Medow to wake up and quickly jump to his feet. But his attacker was much too quick. From behind, he plunged his knife into Mr. Medow's neck. Mr. Medow made an effort to fight back while pleading with the attacker to not kill him. Even though the assailant was much smaller, he managed to get the best of his victim. Mr. Medow's autopsy revealed that he did have somewhat of a chance to defend himself against his attacker, and his injuries were much more extensive than that of Mr. McGillivray's. Mr. Medow suffered several broken ribs, he had been bludgeoned about the face and head. He had defensive wounds on his hands. His neck had been slashed, and the knife had gone right into his temporal bone, penetrating his brain. Authorities in Orange County were really going to have to consider the very real possibility that they did in fact have a serial killer on their hands targeting the homeless population and the fear was there was going to be another murder very, very soon. They just had no idea where this killer was going to strike next, and they really didn't have to wait very long to find out.
For many years, a 57-year-old man named Paulus Cornelius Smith had struggled with drug addiction and found himself sporadically homeless for a good number of years. And for the better part of 2011, Mr. Smith was living in a run-down, dilapidated house with a girlfriend. However, Orange County authorities condemned the house, and when they did, Mr. Smith found himself with no place to stay. At times, he was able to stay with relatives, but many of them were barely hanging on to their own living situations. Mr. Smith's mode of transportation was his bike. To him, it was the most important thing that he owned. He used it to travel up and down Yorba Linda's busiest thoroughfare, Imperial Highway. And one of the places that he liked to spend time was at the city's public library. On December 30th, 2011, Mr. Smith had spent a couple of hours at that library that afternoon. When he came outside, he discovered that his bike had been stolen. In order to avoid having to walk, he called one of his daughters and asked her if she could drive up to the library to give him a ride. She told him that she couldn't. Another one of Mr. Smith's daughters would have been able to, but she was still at work and by the time she was off, it would already be too late. You see, Mr. Smith's bike wasn't actually stolen. Someone had taken it and hidden it in order to cause him to not be able to leave the area. That person had apparently been watching Mr. Smith for quite some time. For how long? Nobody really knows. It could have been a couple of hours. It could have been a couple of days. He had pretty much been stalked by that person watching him, and that person was waiting for just the right time to launch their attack. Mr. Smith walked around towards the back of the library to sit down in an out-of-the-way place near an outside staircase to wait for the daughter who was going to pick him up after she finished her work shift. That's when the man who had hidden Mr. Smith's bike struck. The attacker began stabbing him in the back, his head, and his neck, and his upper torso. Mr. Smith's ribs were fractured, his heart was punctured, his jugular severed. The attack occurred while the library was still open, so if Mr. Smith had called out for help, nobody seemed to have heard him. Perhaps his attacker went for the jugular first, preventing him from making any cry out for help. With this third murder, if authorities had any doubts that there was a serial killer in their midst, those doubts were quickly evaporating. Not only that, it seemed like with this latest killing happening mid-afternoon, whoever was doing this was becoming more brazen. Orange County authorities were now convinced that they had a serial killer on their hands and that serial killer was targeting the area's homeless population. So they took steps to warn the public to be aware there was a killer who was attacking homeless men. They encouraged people to try to stay in shelters, to stay in groups, to not be alone, get into a shelter or to a safe place, be vigilant about their surroundings. They passed out these little baggies with flashlights and whistles. 
It was all they could do to try and get the word out there to people, so at least they were aware of what was going on. But, you know, it's impossible to get to everyone. Not everybody heard the warnings, and not everybody heeded them. John Barry was a veteran of the Vietnam War, and he was one who enjoyed looking up at the sky. He loved looking at the birds during the day and the stars at night. His favorite place to be was in the outdoors where he could stare up to the heavens anytime he wanted. On the morning of January 5th, 2012, Mr. Barry was in Anaheim, resting near some benches overlooking the Santa Ana River, just as Mr. Madal had been. An officer with the Anaheim Police Department walked up to Mr. Barry, and it just so happened that a photojournalist with the Los Angeles Times was with the officer, who was working on a story about the police department's homeless outreach efforts in the wake of those three murders. That moment was captured by that photojournalist. In the picture, you can see Mr. Barry sat next to his yellow bike with his legs outstretched, looking up at the officer as he explained to him that there was a man going around attacking homeless men. Mr. Barry listened, but then assured the officer that he would be just fine, even if there was a serial killer around. He'd be just fine, he said. That picture of that Anaheim police officer and Mr. Barry was printed in the Los Angeles Times next to an article about the killings of homeless men. There was a strong suspicion that the killer himself may have seen that article and that picture because in the days following the publication of that article, Mr. Barry called police to report that he felt like he was being followed even though he moved around frequently to some of the various places that he liked to hang out, he still felt that somebody was watching him. Police implored him to try and find a safe place to stay. Either Mr. Barry couldn't or he wouldn't. I'm just going to go on with life as it is, he was quoted as saying in that Los Angeles Times article. Another week passed without incident. That is until Friday, January 13, 2012. It was a little after 8 p.m. that evening when Mr. Barry was walking his bike behind a fast food restaurant in Anaheim. The restaurant was situated in the parking lot of a large shopping complex, and Mr. Barry was near the trash bins in the back. That's when a thin man in a dark hoodie ran towards him, The attacker knocked Mr. Barry down. He fell onto the pavement. The attacker pulled out a knife and spent the next several minutes stabbing Mr. Barry in a violent, frenzied attack. The attacker did not stop stabbing well until after Mr. Barry stopped moving. There was no denying it now. For the first time in a quarter century, a serial killer was terrorizing Orange County and the news of this was quickly spreading across the country. So you're probably wondering why 
I suddenly started telling you about the murders of these homeless men. I didn't know them. I had no idea who they were. But I would be connected to them in an unexpected way. And no, I didn't kill them. I didn't have anything to do with that. You see, I was in the county jail when those four men were murdered, charged with murder myself. But I promise you, I promise you in everything that I love that I didn't do it, even though everything I love was dead. Let me roll back the clock a little bit here. Two months before the murders of the homeless men began, on the evening of October 25th, 2011, 911 dispatchers received a strange phone call. The man on the other end of the line sounded a little bit muffled when he reported that he was hearing some strange noises coming from his home on Trick's Circle. The dispatcher asked what city the caller was in and he said, Your Belinda. At that point, the dispatcher needed to transfer the call to the city of Brea. From 1971 through 2013, the city of Brea provided police services to the city of Yorba Linda, which was a first in the state of California for one city to provide police services to another city. Since 2013, however, Yorba Linda has been serviced by the Orange County Sheriff's Department. So that call was transferred and a dispatcher from Brea picked it up. The caller repeated the name of the street that he said he was calling from, Trick's Circle. And that's where I lived, with my mom and my brother. The dispatcher asked the man to try and speak a little bit louder. And the original dispatcher then stated that the caller said he was hearing weird noises coming from there. But the Brea dispatcher pointed out that the call was not coming from a residence. It was originating from a payphone. The caller went on to say that he was hearing strange noises at his house located on Trick Circle and that he wanted police to come out to the location to investigate. Our house was on Trick Circle, spelled like the serial, Tricks, Tricks are for Kids. It was a pretty small cul-de-sac with only eight houses, including ours, in it. We all knew our neighbors pretty well. We'd lived there for a long time. And it isn't a place where there would be any kind of traffic to come through there, by car or otherwise, aside from those of us who lived on that little street. Since the city of Yorba Linda was incorporated in 1967, there was an average of one murder per year, except for that year, 2011. The first set of Brea police officers arrived at the scene and approached the front door. And right away, outside the door, on the porch near the welcome mat, they saw blood. A pretty large blood stain covering a good portion of the porch. There were also blood stains or blood spatter on the front door as well. It was apparent to the police that whoever bled that much blood was pretty severely injured and was in dire need of medical intervention if they were even still alive. Officers went around the side of the house 
accessed the backyard through a gate and peered inside a window. From their vantage point, they could see a woman laying on the floor who wasn't moving and appeared to be dead. Now that this has turned into a potential murder scene, officers carefully entered the house, unsure as to whether or not the suspect was still inside. As they made their way through the house, they found a second victim, this time an adult male who is also deceased. Based on those first responders and what they could see, it appeared as though both victims had been stabbed multiple times. It was brutal, and it was bloody, and it was my mom and my brother. When they were killed, I wasn't home. Some of our neighbors were, but only one of them heard anything suspicious. This neighbor lived directly across the cul-de-sac from us. He was working on his computer when he heard someone yelling out for help. When he went outside, he glanced over at our house and saw what he thought was somebody trying to drag a piece of furniture into our house from the front porch. He specifically thought that it was a couch and that the person who was asking for help needed help getting it in. Obviously, that's not what was happening. That was the attacker dragging one of the victims into the house. The attacker had come into the home uninvited. He began stabbing my mom first in the living room. My brother rushed into the room, and that's when the attacker began stabbing him as well. My brother tried to get out the front door, but the attacker was able to grab him and drag him back in. That is what the neighbor witnessed. The killer then left our house, went to a payphone, and made that 911 call. The problem is that neighbor who saw this told police that the person dragging that piece of furniture that he thought it was in through the front door was me. That right there should have given the police pause because this neighbor also thought that my brother's body was a piece of furniture. How reliable can this witness be? But like I said, I wasn't home. I wasn't there. I did drive by the house after the police were there, but when I saw everything going on, I kept driving. The police did think that was kind of suspicious, that there was all of this police activity at my house and at my cul-de-sac, and that I didn't stop. Wasn't I curious? Didn't I want to know what was going on? Wasn't I concerned about my mom and my brother knowing that they were likely there at the home? The thing was, I was with my friend, and we were going to kick it at my pad. But when I saw the whole street was blocked off, I just said to my friend, you know what, let's just go to your place instead. I didn't even want to bother with trying to get past everything to get home. And besides, the real reason why I didn't stop was because I'm undocumented. I did everything that I could to avoid contact with police. I had no idea that my house was the reason why they had it all blocked off, and the reason for that was because my mom and my brother had been murdered. But the police didn't see it that way. When I drove by, when police found out that I had passed by and kept on going, they right away thought that that was strange. 
I mean, but think about it, man. If I did something like that to my mom and my brother, why would I go to a payphone and call 911 to report myself and then go and drive by right after the whole police department got to my house? And then my stupid ass neighbor tells police that he saw me dragging a piece of furniture into the house. How are they going to think that is in any way what actually happened? How are they going to believe the neighbor when he said that he saw me when he mistook a body for a couch? So now the police are not only thinking that it was me that dragged my brother's body into the house. They were believing that when I saw police activity on my street that I fled the scene of a crime because I didn't stop. The police began a county-wide search for me and my vehicle. And you know what? It didn't take them long to find my car. I was at my friend's house just a little ways away from my own place. I had parked my car in his driveway. We had just been hanging out all night. If I was running away from a double murder that took place in the city of Yorba Linda, don't you think I would flee a little bit further than a couple of miles away still in the city of Yorba Linda? Wouldn't I have made some kind of effort to try and hide my car instead of just having it parked right there in plain view in my friend's driveway? So it was about 3.30 in the morning when I had gone outside to get my backpack out of the car because I decided I was just going to crash at my friend's place and try to get a little bit of sleep before I went home. I didn't know it at the time, but the police were watching when I went out to my car. After I went back inside, I found out later they had gone up to my car, shined their flashlights through the window, and they saw what they thought was a small blood stain on my driver's seat, about the size of a nickel. So there's even more reason for them to think that I had something to do with what happened at my house. I really couldn't sleep very well at my friend's house, so I got up a little bit before 5.30 in the morning and just decided to go home. I figured the police and everything on my street would be gone by then, and I'd just be able to get to my house with no problem. But before I was even able to get to my neighborhood, the police pulled me over. And it wasn't like the way they normally pull you over with one squad car and the cop gets out and walks up to your window and asks you some stupid question like, do you know why you got pulled over and to hand over your license, registration, and insurance? No, they skipped all the questions. And there were about four or five squad cars behind me and they immediately started yelling out orders on their loudspeaker telling me that I was considered armed and dangerous to turn off my car and a bunch of them with their guns pointed at me, surrounded my whole car. I cooperated. I did what they ordered me to do. But if there's one thing I knew for sure was to not say too much. I just stayed quiet and did as they ordered because my main thing is I didn't want to get shot. They then wanted to know if I wanted to talk to them at the police station. I said, yeah, that's fine. As if I had a choice, right? I guess I did, but I wasn't sure at the time what was going on, so I figured maybe I could find out some information from them too. As I sat in the police car on the ride to the station, I thought to myself, you know what, I'm just going to try and put up a front. Like I'm not worried, I don't even care, because the fact was, the only thing I had been doing that night was hanging out with my friend. 
I knew I wasn't doing anything wrong. And these cops would soon figure out that whatever it is that they think they got on me, that they're wrong, and I would be home in a couple of hours. I could not have been more mistaken. So you got to remember, when they picked me up, I had no idea that my mom and brother were dead, right? No idea. They didn't tell me either right away. I guess they were trying to wait and see if I was going to ask what this was all about. Well, I wasn't asking and they weren't telling, so I guess we were kind of at a standoff with each other because I wasn't trying to talk to any cops. All they would say was that there was an incident at my house. I figured it was something stupid that involved my brother's business or something like that. I honestly didn't know what to think, but I wasn't about to say anything because you never know how police are going to act or twist things around on you, pin some bullshit on you that you didn't even do. So we're just sitting in this interrogation room, right? And they were saying stuff like, we don't know what happened at your house last night. And I told them that I don't know either. But I could see right away they weren't really listening to me, much less believing me, but I still didn't care. I was just tired and I wanted to go home. I really had nothing to tell them and I sure as hell wasn't about to say anything more than that. You know how they try to pressure you and stuff to try to get you to incriminate yourself? Yeah, I wasn't going to say anything and if they wanted to try and play games with me, then I was going to play games with them too. And you know, I know this is going to sound pretty stupid and looking back on it, I know it was stupid of me to be acting like this. But when one of the cops said that sitting down and talking to me that he didn't get the impression that I'm like this Charles Manson guy or anything like that, I wasn't even really sure where he was going with that statement. But I just hit back by telling him that you never could rule out any possibilities. Yeah, it's really stupid, right? I don't know. I was only 24. I was still a dumbass. But the thing was, I knew I didn't do anything wrong. So I didn't care. They had nothing on me and they sure as hell weren't about to get a confession to anything either. But I'm sure that smartass answer did not help my situation. I just didn't know how deep of a situation that I was in. At that point, I just told myself, Stop acting stupid and just answer the questions, tell them the truth, and if they do their job right, then I'm going to be going home. They asked me about why I drove past my cul-de-sac when I saw all the police activity and the street blocked off. I told them that the way into the street, that there was only one way in and one way out to get to my house, that my friend and I were going to hang out at my place, but when the street was blocked off, we just kept going, and I told them, let's just go to your house instead. But the police weren't buying it, but that was pretty much the truth. They were thinking that I was avoiding the crime scene. And I'm like, driving by my street isn't exactly avoiding the crime scene. That's kind of the opposite of avoiding the crime scene. But it didn't really matter what I said at that point. The police had already decided that they had enough to arrest me and charge me with murder. I still wasn't completely sure what they were talking about, but I was starting to put it together in my head. It had to be something that went down at my house and that someone, either my mom or my brother, was dead, but they weren't telling me right away. It was at that point when they told me that they were charging me with murder that I started to get scared. And I tried telling them that I didn't know what was going on, 
I told them, man, I don't know what's happening. I said that I'm getting a vague idea of what's going on here, but nobody's telling me anything. They told me that they had a neighbor who witnessed me at my house dragging something through the front door. And I told them, look, I wasn't there. I wasn't home. Whatever that neighbor saw, it wasn't me. But the police had already made up their minds. They arrested me and I was booked on murder charges. And that's when they broke the news to me that my mom and my brother were dead. When they took my case to the district attorney, they felt like they had enough evidence against me to formally charge me with their murders. When you get to that point, you know you're pretty much screwed. I don't know how they thought they had enough to charge me, but somehow they did. So then I was just left to sit there in jail for a crime I didn't commit. All I could do at that point was hope that I had a chance to beat this case. But what are the chances of that happening? I know you're sitting there thinking, yeah, right, everybody locked up is innocent, but I'm serious, I did not do this. That morning, on October 25th, the day that this all happened, I woke up. It was a Tuesday. I had plans to do exactly what I told you I was doing, hanging out with my friends. I could hear my brother across the hall, watching his TV and laughing. My mom was asleep on the sofa. And those were the last memories that I have of my brother and my mom alive before I left for the day. And all I did was hang out with my friends. Early the next morning, I was getting pulled over like I was on the FBI's most wanted list. It was during that interrogation that they told me that my brother and my mom were dead. And my whole life changed forever in that moment. My entire family was gone. They were everything to me. My mom, when we were in Mexico, she had a job working at a law firm but she really wanted a better life for me and my brother. And my brother, like I said earlier, he was a father figure to me. I idolized him, and he cared so much for my mom and me. We always came first. He took care of me growing up since he was so much older. And even though there were 10 years between us, we were close. My dad wasn't in the picture. My mom worked all the time. My brother... He pretty much raised me. My family meant the world to me, and now they were gone, and I am left here alone, charged with killing them. If these cops, those detectives, if they knew me and my mom and my brother, there is no way they'd have me sitting in that jail. And yeah, I was looking at the death penalty. I began losing hope. I began thinking that Maybe I would be better off if I joined my family instead of being left behind here on earth. Because with them gone, everything was lost. So with me in jail, the police and the detectives moved on to other cases. And it was just less than two months after I was arrested that the first homeless man was killed, Mr. McGillivray. He was killed on December 20th, 2011, only a few miles from my home. And like my mom and my brother, he was stabbed a bunch of times, 
Then it happened again seven days later on December 27th. Mr. Medell was killed exactly the same way. And then again, only three days later, Mr. Smith had been stabbed again a whole bunch of times. Another almost two weeks had passed before there was another murder. And I know the police were getting desperate to try and catch the guy who was doing this because he was so random and so brazen and so violent. The surrounding areas were terrified because they never knew when or where this killer was going to strike next. They just knew that he was going to strike. And even though 13 days had gone by without a murder, police weren't letting up or getting comfortable that the killer had gone quiet. And he did indeed strike again. Mr. Barry on January 13, 2012. Another homeless man stabbed dozens and dozens of times. While I sat in jail, just waiting for whatever was going to happen to happen, I watched the news. I read the articles about these killings. When I learned of the murder of the first guy, I had been in the county lockup for two months. The story right away grabbed my attention. And then a week later, there was another one. And that's when the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. It was just the way the news reports said that these homeless men were getting stabbed multiple times. It was so close to my house, and my mom and my brother had been killed exactly the same way, stabbed multiple times. The murders of those homeless men seemed so similar to the murders of my family. I kept thinking, what are the chances that there was going to be more than one person going around the Yorba Linda Anaheim area doing this. I know that I did not stab my family. And then there's this guy going around continuing to do the exact same thing that had been done to them. Both Mr. McGillivray and Mr. Medow were killed in close proximity to my house. It made sense to me, but I don't think anybody else was really making that connection. Because I was being charged with the worst crimes you can think of, killing my own family, my own mother, of all people. So the only thing that I could do was focus on who would want to do this to them. Because I knew it wasn't me, so who and why? But it was hard to think of who would or could do something like that to them. And at the same time, I was in jail, sitting there, trying to fight for my life and for my freedom. There are very few things that I can think of in this world more traumatic than having all of that piled on top of you. It felt like nobody was listening to me. Nobody was willing to take into consideration the possibility that I just would not do something like this to my loved ones. It was just so frustrating when you know you didn't do something and there's nothing that you can do about it. And the people who would actually believe you, who would support you and stand by your side are all dead. I knew that if I ever got out of this, I would never be the same. And that scared me too. However, no matter how dark things got, I somehow always managed to hang on to a sliver of hope because I knew in my heart that I didn't do this. I kept hanging on to that hope even though everything going on around me 
was trying to take that hope away from me. But they couldn't. I clung to that little bit of hope very tightly. And sadly, it would be the murder of the fourth homeless man, Mr. Barry, that made sure I wasn't going to lose what little hope that I had left. Because that killer out there attacking homeless people, he messed up. Of all nights, this guy picked the night of Friday the 13th. He picked a really busy shopping center right near my house, right near where he had killed those three other men. It was like this was all a game to him because after every killing, he grew more bold. There were people all over the place in that parking lot where he attacked Mr. Barry. Witnesses were everywhere when he began stabbing him, and Mr. Barry was a regular fixture in the area. Everybody knew who he was, and they knew him to be really friendly and nice. His presence didn't bother anyone, and he generally saw his situation as being the ultimate freedom, rather than being down and out and homeless. That was his outlook. He enjoyed being free to do what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it, to not be tied down to the constraints of societal norms, having a job and owning a home, being a slave to that life. Witnesses started running towards the attacker as he was stabbing Mr. Barry, yelling at him to stop what he was doing. As soon as the attacker saw people running towards him, he looked up, bloodied knife in his hand, and he started to flee from the scene. But the witnesses, they kept after him, and one of them was doing the best that he could to keep up with the attacker and dial 911 at the same time. This one man desperately tried to keep up with him, and the attacker ran into the mobile home park where this man resided. And because he knew so many people in that mobile home park and that there would have been children around everywhere, including possibly his own, that played outside together at that time in the evening, he could not let this killer get away into his own neighborhood. As this man continued to chase down this killer, he began hearing police sirens nearby, which was a relief, but he still did not want to lose sight of the attacker. Finally, this man who was chasing the attacker managed to corner him when police came around the corner right in front of them as they ran. The killer made one last effort to evade capture by making his way out of the mobile home park, but he was quickly apprehended and taken into custody. From jail, I saw on the news that there was a fourth homeless man killed, but this time, they arrested somebody. And my immediate thought was, okay, I'm going to get out of jail soon because I knew this had to be the guy who stabbed my mom and my brother. It was too similar to not be the same person. The next day, I got a newspaper from one of the other inmates which had more information about the person who was arrested for the homeless murders. And it was Izzy, my best friend from junior year, second period, Iscolto Ocampo. I looked at his mugshot in the paper looking back at me. I knew then for sure that he was the one that did this to my family. There was a moment where I told myself, nah, 
It couldn't have been him. We were so close. We shared so much. We were like brothers. My family opened our home to him. I cared for him. I loved this guy. It was very, very hard to believe. Once it sunk in that I was staring at the person who murdered my family plus four other innocent people in cold blood, it shattered me. But I think I only shed one tear, maybe two, because I still had to fight for my own life. Izzy wasn't the same person when he got back from his time in Iraq. Of the three of us, Izzy was the clown. He was the one who was always joking, always trying to make everybody else laugh. But once he got back, it was like his bright and funny personality had gone dark. I noticed it a lot because he had come to stay with us when he got back. He was always on edge, always paranoid about something. He constantly talked about being worried about bad things happening. I was worried about him, that something about being in Iraq had traumatized him and the person that he used to be was gone forever. Things had gotten to a point where my brother decided that it wasn't a good idea for Izzy to continue to live with us and he told me that I needed to tell my friend that he needed to go. And I could tell that when I told Izzy that he had to move, that hurt him deeply. So much so that Izzy considered our friendship to be over for good. I was pretty sad about losing my friend, but there wasn't really much I could do about it. It seemed to me at the time, Izzy's problems were more than I was able to help him with. Clearly his problems were much bigger than any of us could have imagined. After Izzy was taken into custody, he didn't waste any time beating around the bush or trying to deny what he had done. During his interrogation, he provided police with a full confession. He said that he killed the homeless men, and he did it with his knife, a knife that he acquired in the Marines called a K-Bar. It's a combat knife that the Marine Corps began using in November of 1942 as a combat weapon, and later it was used by the Navy as a utility knife. K-Bar is the name of the manufacturer of the knife, which makes other knives and cutlery, but is mostly known for its combat knife that is a 7-inch carbon steel blade, a guard plate, and a leather handle. When Izzy was asked why this happened, he stated, I just did it, sir. I killed them. When Izzy was asked if he knew what was right and what was wrong, he acknowledged that he did. When he was asked if he thought what he did was right or wrong, he stated wrong, but it had to be done. When he was asked why, he stated, not only did I make the county look bad or the state, they were making the place look bad also. Izzy admitted that he followed and stalked Mr. John Barry for a period of four days before he stabbed him to death, and he confirmed the theory that Mr. Barry was targeted because of his picture and the article in the Los Angeles Times. Investigators, based on what Izzy had told them, had discovered that a part of the reason why he wanted to murder was related to his role in the Marine Corps. He admitted that he felt like he wanted to kill people because 
He was in the Marines and that's what Marines do. But during the time that Izzy was enlisted, and he did go to Iraq, but his job was that of a truck driver. That's what he did. He worked around the military base only. He never left the area. He never saw any combat. It made him feel like he wasn't a real Marine because he never got the chance to kill any enemies and that he needed that to solidify his status as a real Marine by murdering someone. He stated in his interrogation that the only reason he joined the Marines in the first place was to learn how to kill. He also told investigators that there were 16 people that he wanted to kill and the killing of these homeless men, that was his practice. Most of the people on his kill list were those from high school that had somehow disrespected him or ignored him or cast him aside. Throughout the interrogation, Izzy was cold, emotionless, remorseless, and unrepentant. There was no doubt that this man would have killed again and again and again had he not been stopped. Escalto Ocampo was charged with four counts of first-degree murder. Meanwhile, I was still sitting in the county jail waiting for somebody to pay attention to the obvious. The guy who killed the homeless men is the guy who killed my family. I reached out to my uncle and told him, look, you gotta get in touch with the Brea Police Department. Talk to the detectives on my case and tell them that we are connected to Izzy, that we know him, he lived in our home for a while, and that he was angry at us, angry at me. Fortunately, the police listened. When the place Izzy was living was searched, they recovered a pair of boots. At first glance, it appeared that they had blood on them. Those boots were collected, and when that blood was tested by the forensic analysts, the DNA came back as a match to both my mom and my brother. Immediately, investigators had to take another look at my case because that double murder was a case that they thought they had already solved. They already had a suspect in custody for that, and that was me. They were finally beginning to realize that they had the wrong guy all along, just like I had been telling them. They were able to see that there was a connection between Izzy and my family, and it wasn't just a casual connection. We had a very long-standing, deep connection that went back years and ended badly when I had to ask him to move out of our home. Once authorities got the information that the DNA on Izzy's boots came from my mom and my brother, they went to the jail to speak to Izzy again, and again he admitted that he was the one responsible for murdering them too. Izzy told him that his intentions that evening at first was to kill me, but I wasn't home, so he murdered my family instead. By the time I heard this information, I was at a point where I thought I was going to crack. I was so hurt and frustrated with the way this whole thing was handled that I had to sit there for three months in jail being told that I was going to death row for something that I kept telling them I didn't do. Shortly after Izzy confessed to killing my mom and my brother, I went before the judge and the murder charges against me were officially dropped and I was free. Once in a while, I go by the old house on Trick Circle. Not to dwell on what happened, but Rather, think of all the good times that we had at that house. 
The three of us stayed there together through all those years. We were truly happy being together. That's why even after 17 years, we all stayed there. I don't think my brother or I would have ever left my mom. There was no reason to. She gave both me and my brother so much love and so much to be grateful for. The best and only thing that I could do then moving forward was to make sure that I would be able to find it within myself to stand up for my mom and my brother and to be their voice when the time came for me to come face to face with Izzy in court. But that day would never come. The coward who stabbed my mother, my brother, and those four defenseless people to death was a coward all the way to the end. It was only a few miles from the murders that Izzy's dad, Refugio, was living in an abandoned truck. It wasn't his, I just knew he was living in it. It didn't run, it was beat up and rusted out. Refugio used to be a history teacher. By the time Izzy got back from Iraq, he was a shell of the man that he used to be, but he did his best to stay clean and well-dressed as he possibly could despite being homeless. It was his way of hanging on to some semblance of his dignity. When Refugio first heard of the murders from the others that he knew within the homeless community, he didn't believe it. A crazed maniac going around with a large knife stabbing homeless people to death sounded like some sort of urban legend. But when one of his sons visited him one day, Refugio was shown some of the news articles about the killings. It was then he began to take it more seriously. This wasn't the first time he lived in a place surrounded by death and violence. He was born in 1962 in one of the most violent areas in the Mexican state of Guerrero. When Refugio was a child, it seemed like there was a funeral every week. He didn't know what it meant at first every time he saw men walking by carrying a pine box. It was his mom who told them that those boxes held the bodies of the murdered. When he was 25, Refugio met and married a woman named Lilia. They very much wanted a better and safer life before starting a family, so they moved to Mexico City and it is there where Refugio got a job teaching history. A year later, they had a son, and they named that son Iscotol, which is the name of the founder of the Aztec Empire who ruled from 1427 to 1440. It translates to obsidian serpent, obsidian being volcanic glass. When Izzy was still an infant, his parents decided to do what so many others in Mexico were trying to do, look for a better life in America. Refugio got in touch with a family member who lived in Orange County, and he came to live with him shortly thereafter. He found a job washing dishes. He didn't care that his job was no longer the prestigious one he had left behind as a teacher. It was worth it as long as he was making an honest living. He was able to save up some money and a couple of months later, Lilia and their infant son joined him. Lilia would later say that the only time she ever let Iscolto out of her arms 
was when someone held him for her while she climbed the fence to get into America. Refugio eventually found a job working in a factory. He studied and learned how to speak English, and when he had time, he studied American history. It was more difficult for Lilia to grasp the English language, and even though she tried, she never really was able to figure it out. In 1994, the couple had another son, and five years later, a daughter. Refugio eventually was able to earn permanent residency in the United States when he purchased a document that indicated he had done agricultural work. There were some specific conditions in the federal bylaws that offered specific types of migrant workers a fast track to being in the United States legally. From there, Refugio earned a promotion and a raise at his job and the family eventually purchased their own home. And soon, the whole family became American citizens. Everything was going well until the Great Recession hit in 2008. Refugio lost his job and was unable to recover. From there, he turned to drugs, which eventually morphed into a full-blown meth addiction. It turned him into a person that his family no longer recognized or trusted. He was violent towards them. They fell behind on their mortgage. Lilia was able to take her children to go live with her brother, but that brother did not want Refugio anywhere near his sister, her children, or his house. So Refugio was left to fend for himself on the streets of Orange County, and he took up living in that abandoned truck. Lilia, however, did not turn her back on him. She regularly brought him clean clothing and food, which is how Refugio was able to stay clean and relatively healthy, even though he was homeless. Izzy was in Iraq when all of this happened, when his family fell apart. He had joined right out of high school and was discharged in 2011. He had come back to live with me and my family at first, as I had mentioned earlier, but once my brother told me I had to kick him out, he went back to living with his mom that fall. He hated the fact that his dad had no place to stay and spent time with him whenever he had a chance. They confided in one another about the things that they were dealing with. Izzy talked about being at war. His father talked about his war with addiction. It turned out that Izzy was the one who was showing Refugio the articles about the homeless men who were being stabbed to death. He begged his father to watch himself, be cautious, be vigilant, pay attention to his surroundings. I could tell that Izzy was having a hard time getting back into the groove of being a civilian again. Most of the time when he was living with me and my family, we sat around just talking and drinking. He had a hard time finding a steady job, but even though he was going through this rough time, as the holidays were approaching, he donated money and food and Christmas gifts to families in need. He would drive clear across Southern California if he had to in order to deliver things to various churches and charities. Even though Izzy was taking part in these acts of generosity, his father could tell his son had problems and was troubled and was becoming an alcoholic. 
The last thing Refugio wanted to see was his eldest boy end up on the streets like him, with his life in danger, like those men who were being murdered. Refugio constantly worried about his son. After the third killing, the murder of Mr. Smith, Izzy had gone to see his father again to check up on him. It was the beginning of 2012 and the media was in a frenzy about what they were suspecting was a serial killer in Orange County. Izzy had with him an FBI poster that had the pictures of the three victims printed on it. He showed it to his dad and told him again, please be aware and continue to try and stay as clean cut as he possibly could. Maybe he wouldn't be targeted if he didn't look homeless. Refugio told his son that there was no need to worry. He promised that nothing was going to happen to him. Less than two weeks after the third murder, the killer struck again, stabbing and killing his fourth and final victim, Mr. Barry. This time, he was caught by vigilant Good Samaritans. When he was cuffed and sat down on the curb next to the patrol cars, people were shocked at what they were seeing. This young man did not look like what you might think a serial killer looks like. But they never do, right? He was so young and good-looking, his hair was buzzed short. He still looked like he was a member of the United States military, except for the fact that he was covered in blood. He didn't struggle with police when they captured him. He cooperated right away and did as he was told. They soon recovered a backpack that Izzy had ditched when he tried to flee the scene, and in it they found gloves, a belt with a sheath in it, and in the sheath was his K-bar. Police warmed the home Izzy was living in that night that he was arrested. It was his uncle's home. And when his uncle returned, he saw all the helicopters. He turned onto a street and found out that it was his house that was surrounded by police and crime scene tape. As soon as he pulled up, officers told him that they needed to get inside his house. At the time, Izzy's younger brother and sister were there. His mom was visiting their father, which pissed her brother off. He picked up the phone and told her, You know what? While you're busy taking care of that asshole, your kids are here with the police surrounding the house. Lilia hurried home. And when she found only two out of her three children there, she worried. A few hours earlier, Izzy had left and said he was going for a walk. He had been taking lots of walks as of late. Lilia's thoughts immediately went to that something must have happened to Izzy. The TV was on in the house as police were asking questions. It was then she discovered where her third child was. He was on the news handcuffed and sitting on a curb. The reporter was saying how this was the person suspected of being the one responsible for the series of murders amongst the homeless community, the subject of a weeks-long manhunt across Orange County. Her is Kotal, her firstborn son. He was the one being suspected of these brutal killings. When he came to live with her in the fall of 2011, there was no other place for him to sleep other than on the floor of the one bedroom that was already cramped with her and her two younger children. But it didn't seem to bother Izzy. At least he never said anything. Lilia knew that her son was struggling after coming back from Iraq. But neither she nor his father ever imagined 
that their son would be suspected of murder, much less serial murder. What's more, it was Izzy himself who kept visiting his own homeless father, warning him about the killer. Why would he do that if he was the one committing the killings in the first place? None of this made any sense to Lilia and Refugio. The evidence recovered from the home Izzy was staying in was damning. I already mentioned the DNA that they found on the boots that belonged to him was a match to my brother and my mom. He also had a sharpener for his K-bar knife, and it also had DNA on it from five out of the six victims. Izzy would never make it back home again to sharpen his knife after victim number six. Among Izzy's personal effects, investigators also discovered articles and papers related to the University of Texas shooter Charles Whitman. On August 1, 1966, Whitman, a former Marine sniper, stabbed his wife and his mother in their homes and then went to the University of Texas campus. He entered the main building, shooting three people to death, and then he went to the 28th floor observation deck of the campus clock tower and started shooting at people randomly, killing 11 more. Izzy admitted in his interrogation that his intention was to emulate the Texas clock tower shooter. When he was asked why he used a knife instead of a gun, he quoted Heath Ledger as the Joker in The Dark Knight. Do you want to know why I use a knife? Guns are too quick. You can't savor all the little emotions. In, you see, in their last moments, people show you who they really are. I didn't know Izzy at the time, but I do know that when the World Trade Center towers fell on 9-11, we were only 13 years old at the time, and Izzy was deeply affected by the attacks. And for him, that, like many others, was a moment that was his call to arms. His parents were strongly opposed to him going into the military. It was not in Izzy's personality. He was a quiet and shy and caring boy. He was strong and proud, but his parents could never see him as a soldier. He had another friend who he had known long before he knew me, a young man named Claudio. They both dreamed of becoming Marines. So when they enlisted, they did it together. They were excited to solidify their bond as brothers. After they finished boot camp, though, Claudio and Izzy went in different directions. Claudio quickly rose through the ranks, becoming one of the best in their class when it came to reconnaissance and marksmanship, and soon he became a sniper. Everything Claudio did, he did with precision. Being a Marine was what this man was born to do. And he wasn't just good at being a sharpshooter. He could kill anyone, whether they were up close and personal or far away. It didn't matter. This man was fearless. For Izzy, he didn't take very well to military life. When he was first sent to Iraq, he was a driver with the medical battalion. He did not thrive well in this volatile and unpredictable environment, and he didn't fit in with all of the other soldiers. 
and he was really upset at the fact that he wasn't serving at the same level and at the same capacity as his childhood friend. While he was off becoming one of the best snipers in the world, Izzy was stuck on base driving a truck. When he wasn't doing that, much of his time was spent digging shelters in the ground where soldiers could sleep during sandstorms. And most nights they'd be waking up by bombs and explosions anyway. He hated it, and he was scared. It was only one month into his time in Iraq that Izzy found out that his dad was laid off. Talking to his mom on the phone, she cried as she told him that his dad had no money and was using drugs and was worse than ever and was never home. Right before Izzy had left, he had discovered some drug paraphernalia in his father's car, so he was aware that his dad was using. But Izzy had little to no reaction to what was going on with his family. If he had any feelings or emotions about it, he kept it hidden. Looking at Izzy, you would never guess how troubled he actually was. But there were flashes of it. A couple of months after he learned of his father losing his job, another Marine accused Izzy of pointing his M16 at him. Izzy tried brushing it off, saying that he was just messing around, but it didn't matter. What he did was unacceptable, and the punishment was harsh and quick. His rank was dropped from Lance Corporal to Private First Class, and it came with a pay cut. Izzy signed a full confession, but blamed everything on the problems his family was having back home. After six months in Iraq, he returned to Camp Pendleton, which is south of Orange County, in San Diego County, where he was still active duty. But Izzy's immediate supervisor did notice a drastic change in him emotionally. The once kind and funny young man had become angry and jaded. He continued to get in trouble for minor things every now and then. Eventually, Izzy was finally discharged after he had fulfilled his commitment, but he was qualified to re-enlist if he wanted to. His supervisor continued to worry that Izzy, without a college education, was going to struggle to find a job and to fit back in with his civilian friends and his civilian life, which is exactly what happened. Another thing that was very troubling for Izzy was the fact that his childhood friend, Claudio, had been killed in June of 2010 in a Taliban insurgency in Musha Kala. He was with his platoon, and as they were racing to the crest of a hill, Claudio exposed himself first, at which point he was met with enemy fire. He took the shots ahead of the rest of his platoon. Three months later, Claudio was awarded the Bronze Star. Izzy was devastated when he learned of Claudio's death. He cried inconsolably as he told his mom on the phone what had happened. Their son had never shed tears like that. In light of what was happening, Izzy's parents felt that Claudio's death marked the beginning of his downward spiral. He was unable to let go of the fact that he was not there fighting side by side with his friend, that he was not there to pick him up when he fell. Izzy spent hours sitting at Claudio's grave, which was a 45-minute drive from where he lived in Yorba Linda. Izzy's family could see that Iraq had changed him. He was suffering, and he was suffering alone. Izzy's journals would later reveal just how much he was haunted by his own nightmares, delusions, and self-loathing. He also wrote about his feelings of wanting to commit murder. 
how he joined the Marines to learn how to become a killer, but turned out to be what they referred to as a POG, a term they used when talking about people who never see combat, and how they gave him a job that, to help save lives instead of one where he got to take lives. In writing about losing his rank, Izzy saw the whole thing as some sort of conspiracy against him, how he went into the Marines normal but fucked up, but came out just simply fucked up, and that he was depressed and wondered why he felt so awful all the time, thinking that maybe he had a brain tumor that was causing him to feel that way. He constantly worried that he was going to end up like his dad, a bum. He wrote about losing Claudio and having survivor's guilt, and for some reason Izzy felt like Claudio's death was his fault, and he wished that he was the one who was dead instead wondering why God picked Claudio instead of him. Izzy wondered why none of his fellow Marines never shot and killed him because they knew him and they knew that he was better off dead. In one of his final entries, Izzy wrote, There are three ways to die, by police, by some random person, or by yourself. Death won't come to me, so I might as well give it a call. Why? Because my head's fucked up. Izzy, however, did not harm himself. As he wrote in his journal towards the end as well, he said, I hate to say it's time to make this town a scary place. Gots to kill a few Pepsis, so hopefully it'll refresh my world. Pepsis is a word for an addict. But, as you all know, Izzy didn't start the killing with the homeless men. He started with my mom and my brother. When he finally made his confession... He told police that he wanted to kill me because I had an attitude. He waited outside for a while to see if I would come home, but he didn't want to wait for me anymore, so he killed my mom and then my brother. The medical examiner later determined that between the two of them, they suffered more than a hundred stab wounds. It never occurred to me those three months that I was in the county jail that it was my old best friend Izzy that murdered my family. I mean, I know we kind of had a falling out after I told him he had to move and we really weren't friends anymore, but the thought that he was the one who did that to them, I never even got close to thinking that it was him. If it wasn't for those good Samaritans who saw Izzy murder Mr. Barry behind that Carl's Jr., how they immediately knew that they were watching the guy responsible for the homeless killings right there in front of their eyes. I may have spent the rest of my life in prison or on death row. Aside from my family being taken away from me forever, another one of the saddest parts of this whole story is that if the police had done their job right in the beginning, had done their due diligence and arrested the right guy for killing my mom and my brother instead of arresting me, four other innocent lives would not have been lost. I did receive a settlement of $700,000 for the wrongful arrest and detention, but the Brea police never admitted to any wrongdoing, and I never received an apology. No amount of money could ever make up for what I lost because of what Izzy did to my family. And what's worse, I never got to see justice truly served. I never got to come face to face with my former friend who had taken so much away from me. In January of 2012, Iscoto Campo was charged 
with six counts of first-degree murder with the special circumstances of multiple murders, lying in wait, and the use of a deadly weapon. If convicted, he was facing the possibility of being sentenced to death. Izzy was the first to admit that he deserved death and to give him whichever way was the quickest. But he ended up entering a plea of not guilty, and his lawyers, in speaking to the media, stated that they were entertaining the possibility of an insanity defense. There was the possibility that Izzy had an onset of schizophrenia during or following his time in the military. Possibly, he struggled with PTSD. But the prosecutor brushed off both of those conditions, citing that Izzy had no history of mental illness prior to entering into the military. And he noted that he never saw combat during his six months in Iraq, and all he did was drive a truck around the base that did not involve transporting anyone who was injured or dead. All he did was drive a water truck, according to the prosecutor. It doesn't really matter to me either way. I just wanted the guy off the streets for good and to see him pay for what he did to my family and those other innocent victims. But in the end, nobody really got what they wanted. We would never find out what was wrong inside Izzy's brain, and we would never see him go to trial and face the charges against him. Izzy languished in the county jail for two years while he waited to go to trial. He was given prescriptions to help treat depression and Ph.D., he was placed on suicide watch at least once for banging his head against his cell wall. He talked often with other inmates and prison guards about committing suicide. His parents visited him often, but never spoke of the crimes that he was accused of. And in 2013, Izzy was dishonorably discharged from the Marines. Unbeknownst to everyone, Izzy was busy in his little jail cell. He was stockpiling small portions of industrial abrasive cleaning powder, like Ajax or Comet, in his cell. Inmates were given the powder if they wanted so they could clean their sinks and their toilets. Izzy was keeping it in several empty milk cartons that he had hidden under his bed. On November 27, 2013, corrections officers found Izzy in his cell laying on the ground throwing up, shaking, and foaming at the mouth. They thought he was having a seizure. Izzy had ingested the cartons of industrial cleaner that he had been hoarding and washed it down with water. The next day, he was pronounced brain dead and taken off life support. And with that, one of Orange County's most high-profile murder cases was over. That day was Thanksgiving Day. In the county jail, the inmates were given somewhat of a better meal for dinner than they usually got because of the holiday, and Izzy had even told his mom that he was looking forward to it. Instead, his mother, Lilia, received a call and was told that her son had been transported from the jail to a nearby hospital and that she needed to get there quickly. When she and his father arrived, they were told that Izzy was brain dead. At 7.15 on Thanksgiving evening, Izzy's parents made the decision to pull the plug. In reflecting back on all that had happened, Refugio had wondered if he had made the right choice leaving Mexico and bringing his family to the United States. In the end, he believed it was the right thing to do. 
thinking that if they had remained in Mexico, they would have suffered a much more terrible fate. I am one to disagree with that sentiment. After all, it was my family, their son murdered in cold blood, not his own. They still have one another to lean on, to talk to, to hug, to love. All I can do now is do my best to live my life as happily and as freely as I can and be grateful to have had my mom and my brother for the time that I did. I think of them always and look forward to the day we will meet again.